0: so uh while don comes up to get ready to teach um just want to give you where we're going with the teaching schedule for the last three months we've been doing luke i've got one more section next week to finish out through luke 9 And then what we're going to do is we're going to shift over to look at the post-exilic period. So Don's going to give an introduction to that concept and to um, just some of the core concepts that come about during those scriptures. I'll be teaching Ezra, Nehemiah. And then when Don and Jim have their chance to come in, then they're going to be teaching from some of those prophets. So that's where we're heading for the next couple months. So Don, I'm glad you're here. Thanks, Brian. Fire away. Yeah. So, my name is Don Love, and I'm on the teaching team here, an elder, and also on the prayer team. And as we were just talking about here, Brian was saying about this aspect of that balance of prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is something that actually even goes back. I remember Jim Nelson talking as an elder before COVID and suggesting that maybe we need to go into the prophets and talk a little bit about some of what was going on in the Old Testament prophets. And so, This has been somewhat long in coming in that way, but I've not forgotten. I've kind of treasured some of the things that happened in that conversation, just kind of realizing that this is a direction that we need to go. I want to see here, when we talk about prophets, especially like Old Testament prophets, I'm kind of wondering, is it something that seems fun to you when we talk about prophets, or is it something that seems kind of frustrating to you? So if we, talk, uh, if we did a vote here, more fun or more frustrating, how many of you would say when you think Old Testament prophets, you think more fun? Fun? Okay. How many would say more frustrating here? Okay. We're kind of divided a bit, but there's a lot of fun and a little bit of frustrating, and then a bunch of people who didn't vote. So you don't know necessarily... <laughs> which one it is. And maybe I, maybe I should have said that both funny and frustrating. And maybe that would actually summarize the prophets quite well sometimes because they can be exciting sometimes, but other times you feel like you're taking a beating, even whenever they're not, you're not the one getting rebuked, you know? Um, but then sometimes we actually are the one getting rebuked, even though we're not the one getting rebuked. But anyways, so the second thing too, I was wondering when you think about how important is prophecy to your personal faith, like you're the way you live it now, not the way you think you should live it. But when you think about prophecy and the role of your faith, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know how many of you would say it's somewhere on the low side? It's not really that important to you as far as like how you live your life or how you think about Christianity. You would say it's not that important. How many would you raise your hand? Okay, how many would you say you think it's very important? Raise your hand. Okay, and again, once in the middle? So we've got quite a few that are over here. So let's vote one more time so we can get a good one. And on the first half, in the way that you functionally live your Christian life, not that important, 1 to 5. Okay, and the other half, five to 10. Okay, we got more raising our hand there. Okay, good. Uh, Well, for me, even especially early on in my Christianity, even now, prophecy was really foundational to why I believe what I believe. The idea, Isaiah talks about how God is this God who knows the future, and he uses that as kind of the gauntlet that he throws down to say that he is better than all other gods. Any idol you can carve out of wood, he is so much better. Let those idols try to predict the future, but God predicts the future. And I always thought that was a pretty good argument to say that this is the God above all other gods, because if he's all-knowing and all-powerful, he at least either knows what's going to happen or he can make it happen. Regardless, he is going to be able to predict it so that it comes to pass. And so I always thought that was was a really great analogy here. Um, Josh McDowell had a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it made popular this analogy, and it talks about how um, whenever Jesus was crucified on the cross, there was 27 prophecies, that were all fulfilled in one day. And then it says, if you were just to take eight of these prophecies and you were to be able to figure out the odds of this, and a mathematician did this, an astronomer did this, and the math he came out with was if you had the state of Texas covered in silver dollars, have you heard this before? Okay, state of Texas covered in silver dollars, two feet deep, you mark one of them with an X, and then somebody's blindfolded goes, picks up one coin, that's the odds of just one prophecy being fulfilled. And You know, I heard those things early on, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then later on, I thought, wait a minute, how do you even come up with that math? I mean, how is that even possible in any way? And and there were certain things that I'm sure figuring out, things like born in Bethlehem, tribe of Judah, if you can have census data. But the question is, do we have accurate census data of the first century? I don't know. I mean, Caesar Augustus took one, but I don't think we have it. You know, so... Then I started to doubt a little bit. Like, wait a minute, this, that's a little bit sketchy there. So uh, yeah, it's good that prophecies fulfill, fulfilled, but let's not make too big of an analogies that blow out of proportion. And then I studied the book of Matthew and I further got confused because Matthew would say things like, and this happened to fulfill this prophecy. And then I read it and I'm like, wait a minute, that's actually talking about Moses. Or wait a minute, that's talking about Israel. Or that was actually already fulfilled before. How could this be fulfilled again in Jesus? And you can see how those outside of the faith, especially, would start picking these things apart and just say, like, look at these apostles here. They're just making this straw man argument to say, like, Jesus is the Messiah. And maybe they're doing it out of faith. Maybe they're so excited they think Jesus is the Messiah. So they go back and they find Jesus is the Messiah everywhere, everything, all throughout the Bible. And so I would go and I would talk to my Bible professors about this And they would say, well, you know, I said, well, how can they interpret it this way? Look at this passage in the Old Testament. It's talking about Israel. And then usually what they would say is, oh, they're apostles, so they can do that. And I would think, are they really? Because they're twisting scripture. Would I say the same thing? If it was a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness that was taking and finding these things and going far beyond the text... How do I know that I'm not in like, the largest cult of all time? You know, maybe I need to go back to Judaism and, and just be a good Jew instead of following Christianity. Maybe we're the heretics here. And so for me, this caused a, a big struggle. And it's hard to lead your family in, a, like, I'm, I'm, in an ungodly way. But it's hard when you read the Bible and it feels painful to you. Um, when you feel like, you know, if I just don't read the Bible, I actually feel better. And it's not because I'm feeling convicted. It's because I don't know if this is true. And the more I read the way that Matthew treats the Old Testament, the more it bothers me. And so it's just like I have enough to deal with that I don't have to struggle with the theology of Matthew here and all of this. So today, as we get into the prophets, I don't know where you guys are. Um, I'm hoping that, yes, it can be frustrating. Yes, it can be fun here. Um, but I'm hoping that you're not struggling like I was. I mean, there's a lot of people that... Um, I bring these things up and they're like, I would have no idea that you could even struggle about that. And even, even in the PhD courses I was in, I would ask these other students and they're like, they're cool with it. And I'm like, how can you be cool with this? Well, they use the Bible, they're apostles. Yeah, but how do you know that you're not just born into the wrong religion? You know, how do you know this? Um, and so, but the good news is uh, people talk today about deconstructing your faith. Usually what they mean is just tearing it down. Tearing it down is not deconstructing, normally is so you can reconstruct it. You don't just tear something down for no good reason and leave desolation. And by the way, that's what happens sometimes in our theology, is we hear something and it takes away something that's very important to us. Like For me, I didn't realize how foundational prophecy was for me until it got pulled out from underneath me, and then suddenly I realized I'm not standing on much anymore because I realized the way that prophecy was, if you look at those 27 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion, a lot of them, you know, there could be straightforward, but others of them, I'm like, wait a minute, I don't know if I agree. Is that really a fulfillment? And then to find out, I'm going to move over a little bit in case I'm in the blind spot here of the audio. Um, Come to find out, well, Matthew was the one, or Luke was the one who said that was a fulfillment. So I can't disagree with them. If they're apostles and I believe the Bible is the word of God, I can't just say, well, I just disagree with Matthew on that point, right? Things kind of fall apart at that point. So, but what I want to say is that the neat thing is, I really think that those things that got deconstructed in my faith and got rebuilt again are the things that are the strongest, those things that I can rely on because I know why they're there. I know how they're built, but it was painful to get there. And I'm hoping today I can be able to help those of you who are struggling through things like this in scripture and help those of you who are not yet struggling to be able to maybe take some of the ways that you think about prophecy that are destined to fall and help you understand a little bit about what's actually going on in the New Testament here so that you can understand prophecy in the Old Testament. I'm also, though, going to share a little bit of what I'm currently working through. Um, And the good news is, though, I think that our understanding of the Old Testament prophets and who they are and what they did, and then how the New Testament authors understood them will help us to be able to work through the next stage of things that I think we need to all work through here as we get into the next stage here at Grace. So one of the things that's, of course, distinctive about prophecy is there's often symbolic features of it. And sometimes it seems a little freaky. You get into Ezekiel, for example, and he has all these wheels and things that are going on. There are these creatures that have multiple faces, which, by the way, scarily seem to be real, seem to be a kind of angel. They're not the kind of angel you normally put on top of your tree on Christmas time, but they're, they have different faces and they're kind of freaky scary and they have multiple wings all over the place. And the scary thing too is it doesn't necessarily describe them as bird wings. It might actually be insect wings. So these are freaky creatures here that are doing work of the Lord here. And they might be symbolic even within their creation, but they might also be exactly real like that. And so their creation itself might be symbolic of something, and they still might actually literally exist in that way. Um, and as we're looking, though, through Daniel, for example, there's horns on beasts that talk to each other, um, animals coming up out of abysses. And at first, as a kid, I thought this was like dinosaurs coming back to life or you know, Godzilla kind of creatures in the end times. Uh, But when you look at what's happening here, once you start being able to cumulatively understand the prophets, they all start to interpret each other, and they all start to make sense. And that's one of the cool things that I like about Brian's idea of him going through a historical book, and Jim and I going through the prophetic books that are being written at the same time. You'll see as you read through Ezra, it mentions Haggai by name. They know each other. They're working with each other. And if we can start to understand how these books function together, and how the prophets worked in their day and age, we might now understand how God speaks to his people better in this day and age and how uh, these things fit together. So don't give up when you see the symbolic there. Um, One of the things I would really encourage you to do is just to keep reading. Um, uh, There's been times when I've been so frustrated with the prophets because I'm doing my little reading schedule and I'm trying to interpret it and I can't figure it out and I put my pen down, my journal down for the day. The next day I pick up and then it says, and then Daniel said to the angel, what does this mean? And the angel says, I'm like, well, why didn't I just read four more verses? Because then I would know. And then plus I'm reading the commentaries of what people are saying they think it means. And they're contradicting what the angel said in the scripture. And I think that doesn't sound wise. I think I'm going to read the Bible and see what the Bible says about the Bible and then make my judgments about that. And so I want to encourage you not to get discouraged about the symbolic part of it. Eventually it actually becomes pretty cool. Eventually, a picture is worth a thousand words, and these symbols start to become powerful. They're not as scary to you anymore. And then you're able to start having fun in some of this prophecy. So one of the key verses for the Old Testament, if you look at this with me, Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. So if you grab your Bible. It's one of the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 18. 20 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. But the prophet who dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, the prophet must die. You might say to yourself, how can we recognize the message of the Lord is not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So we might say the test of prophecy is if it comes true, but really the text is saying the prophecy, the test is if the prophecy doesn't come true. So that's hard because you only know he's not a false prophet once he gets something wrong. Or No, he is a false prophet once he gets something wrong. So just because he gets something right, doesn't mean he's a true prophet. It's only until he gets something wrong that you know he's a false prophet. So that kind of stinks. It would be nice to know like, okay, this is his first prophecy. Seems like it's right. I think it's good. He's got two rights so far. He's probably a true prophet now. Um, But yet at the same time, we're going to see false prophets throughout the Old Testament able to predict the future to some degree, Um, which kind of blows a little bit of a hole in that whole Isaiah thing where God's saying, can the idols predict? Um, But part of it too is Um, Sometimes they're lucky guesses. Other times they do have a a picture of what's getting ready to happen um, because they know what's going on in the spiritual realm. They do have something tapped into there. But that's still a little bit disconcerting because it requires a discernment to discern is this person of God or not when they're speaking this message. Um, But in that passage, by the way, it actually predicts a prophet like Moses who's going to come. And it seems like ultimately Jesus is going to be that prophet like Moses that comes later on. So keep that In the back of your mind here as well. So a couple things on fulfillment. Um, I want to make sure that if you're reading some of the horrific things that God is predicting is going to happen, that you don't necessarily think that that's God's desired will that it happens. In fact, he's urging people not to do these things. And so sometimes when he's talking about things that are going to happen, it's not because God made them happen. It's because God knew they would happen if you take that path. So um, in a minute, we're going to see um, a list of some things in Lamentations that happened, and God predicted they would happen, and they include like eating your own children. Um, and I want to make sure that you don't think that that's a curse from God, that God's like, all right, well, you did that, so guess what? I'm going to make you eat your own kids. That's not God's heart here. So I want to make sure we're careful here just because God predicted it doesn't mean he planned it and wanted it to happen. It's just the result sometimes of the own fruit of our own labor here. Um, So secondly, and here's, here's the place that actually helped me out. This is what, after years of working through this, this is something that I finally came up with. My professors didn't teach me this. It took me a long time to be able to get to the end of this. But there's something that's often called typology. And I didn't really get typology. It didn't really make sense. They would say, "Ah, Joseph is a type of Jesus, or Moses is a type of Jesus, or Jesus." Is, and I couldn't quite get what that means to be a type of something. But then I dug around enough, and back in the 40s, they used to talk about this differently. They would say something like, they would talk about prefiguration, and so they might say that Moses was a prefigure of Jesus, that um, that David was a prefigure of Jesus. So there's a sense in which Jesus is a better David, a better Moses, and the way that David was, was in a way a preview of coming events about the coming of Messiah. And so when you look at prophecy, I always thought prophecy was like a prediction and a fulfillment. He will be born in Jerusalem, he's born in Jerusalem, or born in Bethlehem, He's born in Bethlehem, he's born in Bethlehem. And then over here, he's gonna be born of the tribe of Judah and then he's born in the tribe of judah and i thought about prediction and fulfillment but there's other prophecies here saying there's going to be a new moses there's other prophecies saying there's going to be a new king david a new exodus um, israel is called god's son and then this is god's true son here and so when we start to understand jesus is a new moses jesus is an israel um, jesus is king david jesus is god's son then after a while the things that are talked about about israel can suddenly be applied to Jesus prophetically. And you can start to see that maybe, just like a good book, what if God is guiding history in such a way that he does something in Israel's history that makes you realize later in Jesus that Jesus is now the better version of that. He's the better Israel, he's the better Moses, he's the better King David. Then suddenly you start to understand why this could actually be both a prediction and fulfillment and something that's a prefigure that finds its meaning in Jesus. So for me, it's important you kind of grasp that because this is where I was able to rebuild my prophecy understanding a little bit here is yes, there are predictions and fulfillments, but those are often, there's gonna be a king like David that comes. There's gonna be a prophet like Moses that comes. There's gonna be an Exodus that comes and Jesus then fulfills that. And so those things that talk about Jesus, David, um, Israel can now be fulfilled in Jesus in a way that it's prophetic. So don't just think prediction and fulfillment I think this idea of prefiguration, if that's something that's still intimidating to you, feel free, we can talk about it a little bit more and unpack that a bit. But that changes greatly uh, my ability to be able to say, yes, I think the apostles were handling the scriptures well. I think they were looking at real prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. And I can start counting up the prophecies. Even if I can't say anything about the state of Texas or silver dollars, I still can say there's some impressive things going on here about prediction and fulfillment. The next thing that's often missed is that prophets are not just predicting. They're not just foretelling, they're foretelling, they're preaching. And so you need to think of the prophets as preachers of the law with taking what they see in the law and they're saying, the Lord said that if you didn't do this, then this was going to happen. But if you did do this, then this would happen. And now you did this or you didn't do this. And so here's the results that's pretty much the definition of preaching right there. They're seeing you didn't, you should have done this thing. This is what God's word says. And they're calling God's people back to the word. And so a lot of the prophets, when you're reading through it, it's actually not prophetic in the sense of looking to the future. In fact, the majority of an Old Testament book is not predicting something. It's actually looking back to the law and saying whether or not Israel or these other people followed what God said. And so think of the prophets not just as foretelling, but also foretelling here, not just predicting, but also preaching. And so I want to look here briefly. I know you won't be able to exactly see this, um, but I'm going to explain it to you here, and I can get you a copy of this as well. But if you uh, look at Deuteronomy, that's where God gave the law the second time in the Old Testament, first in Leviticus, then in Deuteronomy, then later in Lamentations. A lamentation is a lament where somebody is sad that something happened, So you might have a lament at a funeral. Well, for Israel, when Israel doesn't follow God's law, eventually God says, I'm going to take you off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon because you have not followed my Sabbath. So for 70 different Sabbath cycles, they're not just supposed to have a Sabbath every Sunday, but every seventh year, they're supposed to have a Sabbath. So for 490 years, they didn't take a Sabbath. Uh, So he said, all right, so 490 years, you didn't take a sabbatical year. Well, now you're going to take 70 of them all at once in Babylon, and you're going to go now. And so that's essentially what happens here. And so Lamentations is where they're lamenting this. Um, Because it's not just that God's giving them days off for 70 years here. What he's doing now is essentially kicking them out of the blessings of land so they can wake up and realize that, that there actually is consequences to not following after God. And so if you look down through this in Deuteronomy and Lamentations, point by point, you'll see that it starts out in Deuteronomy 28, um, and Deuteronomy 28 is talking about there's not going to be any rest for you people, and then Lamentations, there's no resting place. Then your sons and daughters are going to be given to another nation. Your children have gone into exile in Lamentations. You're going to flee from them in seven directions, and it talks about how you've all fled. And then it talks about you're going to be objects of scorn, then in Lamentations, they scoff and shake their heads at the daughters of Jerusalem. It talks actually about this cannibalism of children, and then it fo- comes to pass here in Lamentations. It talks about how the enemy's not going to respect the old or pity the young, and then both are lying dead in the streets. Um, how you're going to build a house and not live in it. Well, here's what happens. They built houses and they didn't live in it. It just keeps going on and on where you see, it's almost like an I told you so kind of method. And it doesn't actually take a profit to figure these things out. If you had just read the law, you would think, you know what? We didn't really do these things. So if God's serious about this, maybe this is gonna happen. But the problem is God is so loving and kind and patient that after a while you think, ah, he hasn't punished us for 490 years. Nothing's gonna happen. That's Generations. And you start to shift, and your view of who God is shifts, the culture shifts, and you start to think like, oh, well, you know, maybe God is going to bring wrath. Maybe this, there's this God of love, this God of peace, and you focus so much on the God of love and the God of peace, you don't realize that your whole civilization is imploding to the point where God is going to have to wipe the plate clean and start over. And so what we have here in Deuteronomy and Lamentations is almost a point for point back and forth where we see this is a prediction in some ways because God predicted it was going to happen, but it's also kind of a consequence. You touch the stove, you get burned. So we need to think about these prophets as preachers of the law as well. One of the things too is we, we sometimes would think it would be really cool to be a prophet in the sense of like getting to know it's, it's not cool in that sense that he might ask you to do weird things like lie naked on your side for years, lie naked on your side for years, um, or be able to um, have to do something, something where you're going to be hated by people. But it would be kind of cool to know what God's plan is. Uh, but at the same time, what we see with these prophets is that they don't always know the whole plan. They often only know part of it. Um, you'll see in Daniel, there comes a point in Daniel nine where he realizes he's at the end of the 70 years of the exile. So what's going to happen? He, he prays, and the Lord's going to send him a message, but it takes a long time because the angel bringing the message is fighting against the prince of Persia. There's a weird story there. And with this, then, he kind of finds out what's next. He doesn't know. Uh, John the Baptist, he baptizes Jesus and he seems to know there's something special about him, but he doesn't know that he's the one who baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. He says, I didn't know that. All I knew was that um, the Holy Spirit's going to descend on that person when it happens, and then turns out it was Jesus. And you actually see John understanding a little bit more and more about the story, and then in prison, it seems like he needs even more clarification on whether or not Jesus is the Messiah to come or if there are more Messiahs or other figures that are coming there as well. Um, and 1 Peter talks a bit about how the prophets were told they weren't writing for their own sake, but they were writing for us. They, they knew to some degree the messages they were writing down weren't going to be opened or used until our generation later on. So it's important to understand that these prophets themselves didn't necessarily know all the details of the timing here. So I gave you this in your, in your handout here. If you guys open up your bulletin, you'll see it here. This is uh, my chart of the Old Testament. I did my best to try to organize these things together in, according to uh, the different kinds of books in order here. You'll notice most of the prophets, the writing prophets here, they happen during this time period of 2 Kings. That's where the kingdom divides, you have Israel and Judah, so that 12 tribes of Israel split off. You got Judah in one group and all the rest of Israel in another group because Judah had the temple, the other people didn't have the temple. And so when they got into an argument with each other and they split off, the people with the temple tended to stay more righteous because they were following what they were supposed to do, whereas the others started making pagan altars pretty quickly. So at this point now, we have twice the kingdoms going on because we have both Israel and Judah kind of separating as different kingdoms here. And so Amos and Hosea are written to Israel, and these other books are written primarily to Judah, although in some of the larger books, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, you'll see often there's a spattering of them talking to other nations as well. But normally, each book is written to a specific nation, and it will tell you at the very beginning of the book what that nation is. So it's important to understand when these books were written and the nation they're writing to, because that's going to affect the interpretation of what's going on here. And essentially, we've got three different categories. We have those before the exile, those during the exile, and those after the exile. So we call these pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. You can sound smart if you use the words exilic. It sounds good but with us pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic. But really all this means really is a lot of these books here, they're going to find a lot of fulfillment in the exile. And so sometimes when you're reading here, a lot of these prophets are all going to be completely fulfilled by this time or close to. Um, but even then, remember we talked about prefiguration, You know, the idea that some event could actually look ahead to some other event. And so oddly, like in Isaiah, for example, here was one that threw me off for a while. The virgin conceiving and having a child If you read Isaiah, it seems like it's his wife in the next chapter. If you look and read through that, the virgin conceiving the word young woman can just mean young woman. And so the prophecy seems to be fulfilled in the very next passage, but that doesn't mean that this isn't looking ahead towards something else, a greater fulfillment later on. For us, one of the reasons why we're choosing this era right here, when we talk about the prophets, is uh, with COVID, it's not like that was a 70-year exile or anything, but for some of us, it really felt like that. It was very impactful on a lot of people, um, and some people have not recovered. Uh, maybe maybe we all haven't recovered. I don't know. Uh, but with this, the idea is we're hoping that if we can be able to focus on this time period coming up out of exile, there might be something that Scripture has to say for us as we look ahead to what God wants us to do in this next era. And by the way, uh, some of these are called minor prophets because they wrote shorter books. The ones I put in white writing, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel... Those, we call those the major prophets because they wrote more. So they tend to be more influential in the sense that they said more. Um, and so we tend to rely on them more, especially Isaiah, for example. But uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, um, they're often going to be cited because there's just so much in those books. So, but this doesn't mean there weren't prophets before this. In fact, um, we have um, arguably, we could say that um, the first five books there that Moses wrote are prophetic. He is referred to as a prophet. And even, um, even Abraham's referred to as a prophet. Ezekiel, I mean, um, what's the guy's name? Elijah and Elisha. But they didn't write anything. Even Jesus didn't write anything, which seems like kind of a ripoff, right? Just let Jesus write his own book, right? Why do the apostles need to write? I don't know that I trust them. You know, they didn't really seem like they got it when he was here. Um, but the thing is, the Holy Spirit then comes and then illuminates and helps them to understand it. And so, so understanding what the era is, of each book, helps us to understand if it's pre-exile, during the exile, or after the exile, that helps us to understand a little bit of that context. And the good news is you really only have to understand three of them, pre-exile, exile, exile, and post-exile. So it simplifies it. And most of them fall right underneath 2 Kings. So that's pretty easy. So even though they look like we got all these Old Testament books, most of them, the historical context, is just right there under 2 Kings. So not bad. All right. So the next, though, is the the New Testament context. When we think about the New Testament, then, this is my chart of the New Testament here. And when we think about the New Testament context, uh, really the big thing is after the resurrection, things kind of change a bit. I, I really would like to know how angels function differently in the new covenant than the old because they're messengers, right? But if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, well, then they don't have to carry messages around as much, right? Because the Holy Spirit's here. We have a streamline in with the Holy Spirit with us. So, and unlike the Old Testament, where it talks about these prophets having the Holy Spirit come upon them and then prophesying, well, now the Holy Spirit indwells us. But we have something called filling here in the New Testament. So we have indwelling, where the Holy Spirit lives in us, and then filling, where we're walking in the Spirit. And we also have maybe empowering and anointing. And so, still, we could still have something like that from the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes upon us, even though he still indwells us. So I don't know that that it makes it any more um, simple to understand. I just know it's better, that there's something better about the Holy Spirit in us now. Um, And we're we're told in Joel chapter 2 that the sons and daughters are going to prophesy, old men are going to dream dreams, young men are going to see visions, and it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free. This is still going to happen. And so with this then... um, you look at the book of Acts, and it actually talks about this being fulfilled. And so, you, if you go to Acts chapter 2, you see them quoting this passage. So, when you look at Hebrews 1 1, it talks about how in the Old Testament, God spoke to us through um, the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through His Son. We know that's a better deal. Um, and we look at um, 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about how there's going to come a time when the complete comes or the perfect comes um, that we're no longer going to see in part and hear in part because we're going to see face to face. So it talks about prophecy ceasing, words of knowledge ceasing, as though we've come to this full wholeness. And some people will take that to mean the New Testament, when the New Testament came together. Um, The problem that I have with that is going to the highest levels now of at least evangelical scholarship I've been able to study to some degree in the original language and all that. I don't feel like I'm still seeing face-to-face through the text of Scripture. Now, with the Holy Spirit, there's something there. Maybe we can argue that that's face-to-face. But even then, there's still something different than what happened with Moses because my face isn't glowing, right? Do you know this? remember that story? Moses is meeting with God. He walks out. It's so freaky that his face is glowing. He has to cover himself. No one's ever said, your face is freaky glowing. Could you please cover your head? I mean, that's never happened to me. So even though there's something better about the new covenant, there's something that's not quite in its fullness yet. And remember that the text actually said Moses spoke face to face with God as one speaks to another person. I think that Paul might have that in his mind, that there's that level of intimacy there. And so the question that I have is, can we honestly say that we have come to that complete fullness yet and that all these things have ceased? So for me, this is where I'm working through this New Testament prophecy thing, because I grew up in a church where you know the Holy Spirit was kind of talked about, and um, maybe we believed in prophecy. I don't know. We never talked about it. Um, but the people who believed in prophecy in my day were on like TBN, and they would paint their furniture gold, and and their hair was purple. And there's a lot of weird things that were going on um, that made it kind of think like I don't know that I trust these prophetic people here. But if you look at what Paul's saying in Corinthians, he talks about how. Um, that, that uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14.1, and some of these, I, I have to go fast because we're just trying to cover a lot of stuff. I wanted to look at these passages, but you might want to look these up so you can be able to follow along and be able to just make a note here. But 1 Corinthians 14.1, it talks about how we're supposed to earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And then you look at 1 Corinthians eleven. And it starts to lay out some of the rules here, and it says that women are supposed to pray and prophecy with their heads covered. And so um, when you look at a lot of the translations, a lot of your Bibles, it'll actually say rules for service, like rules for um, when you're meeting together as a congregation or something like that. And so it's suggesting that there's this active role that women are supposed to have praying and prophesying. And yet I've seen in churches sometimes where a woman will get up and she'll pray or she'll direct the congregation to pray in some way and they will actually leave the church because they're like, she's teaching having authority. Um, and they're quoting some other verse of Paul, which is good, quote other verses of Paul, but don't quote one verse of Paul without looking at all the other verses of Paul or you might actually end up being a Pauline heretic. You know, so you have to actually think a bit about how do we incorporate all of what Paul is saying. And as Jen and I work through some of these issues of women in ministry, it's been amazing. Jen just simply reads the text of Scripture and maybe prays, maybe shares something very small of a testimony, and women come up crying because in their congregation that's never happened before. And they just feel like such a freedom for women. Um, and one of the things we have to be very careful about is a lot of the world has their finger on the pain of the world. They just don't know how to solve it. And so we have to be careful because sometimes if you try to start. Working on that pain and try to help reach out to the world, people start to associate you with that agenda and that solution, even though we're agreeing on the problem, but not the solution. And so trying to figure out how do we not avoid the issues that are truly hot button issues, um, but yet at the same time do it in such a way that people say clearly, yeah, we're working on the same issue, but we disagree on these other things. But hopefully we can work on the same issues in a way that's not requiring me to sign on to what you are trying to, how you're trying to solve it. So here's here's where my main confusion comes into play. If that was simple enough, you know, I'd be advocating. All right, here it is: prophesy, pray, head covered. This is the way we do it. And and then, but you look at 1 Corinthians 14, and this is one you should spend some time on, looking at here. Um, Paul goes through the rules for at least the Corinthians. It says there needs to be one person prophesying at a time, two at the most, um, and then women need to be silent, and don't forbid people to speak in tongues. So. That's, that's definitely for the Corinthians in their day and age. Um, but then there's that question of, well, wait a minute, Paul. How long was the Corinthian service? Was it an hour, two hours, 10 hours, two days? Does that make a difference? I mean, I would think so. If Paul's saying only two or three at the most, um, well, if it's an hour-long service versus a three-hour service, that might make a difference of how many people get to share. Um, so then that cultural thing gets frustrated in my mind. And then he says that women should be silent there. Well, how can they pray and prophesy if they're silent? I don't get it. Well, maybe that doesn't mean silent like we think it means. Maybe it's, there's a silence and a reverence and a respect in certain areas of the service or certain areas of teaching. Um, and remember, prophets, they actually were preachers. And so a lot of people will say, well, women can't be preachers. Well, wait a minute. What if they're a prophet and you know or have some prophetic thing they're supposed to say? It's going to sound a lot like preaching because that's kind of what prophecy is, right? It's not just predicting it's So... Now, suddenly, it's like, well, wait a minute. So maybe women can't be teachers, but they can be preachers. Or, well, let's let's figure this all out. So that's kind of where I am tossing some of these things back and forth, trying to figure out how does all of this fit together? Because I like to think Paul had a nice theology that fit, and he's not contradicting himself. That seems like counter to Scripture, uh, belief in inerrancy and that the Bible is reliable. So with this, I want to just kind of wrap up here a little bit. I really think that more of us actually believe in prophecy than we think. Um, especially here at Grace, we've been praying for people in other countries for God to do certain things, like dreams and visions, and then we see it happen. And I think missional people tend to realize God still does this because we see, like, we sent people out; they seem like reliable people. They came back as reliable people. We don't think they went insane while they were there, and they're giving these reports back that seem to be legitimate reports that God really does this stuff. And so I think for us, we think, yeah, God, God could do that. And then I gave that sermon back around Christmas last year about dreams, and some of you actually prayed, Lord, I, I do. I want to hear in dreams. If you still do it, I want to hear that. And then I get reports back immediately that people were saying, yeah, God did it for me, and this thing happened. And, and so maybe, maybe God does do this. And if we believe that we're supposed to encourage and warn and call and guide people because God's leading us in something, maybe that should be considered prophecy. And it's hard for me to say, though. Like, I had a friend that I would say, like, um, you know, these precognitive dreams. I would talk about someone having a dream that they saw the future, and he's like, look, man, precognitive, seriously, that's not a biblical word. Just use the word prophecy, prophetic dream. Why are you trying to avoid the biblical term? Well, because people have abused it. I think because it seems weird to me, it seems different to me. I'd rather go to something that sounds more psychological than something that sounds you know, too charismatic-y, you know? Um, so anyway, that's where we are or where I am. So I wanna, I wanna encourage you guys, when you consider the prophets, in closing here, when you consider the prophets, don't think of them just as people who predict the future but also preachers of God's word and righteousness. Consider prophecy, not just as prediction, but also prefiguration. Consider, um, has the perfect come? What's the role of women? What's the role of prophecy and praying in our congregation? Um, Consider, who is God calling you to receive a word from and for you to speak a word for calling, guidance, warning, and encouragement. So let me close in prayer. Lord God, I pray for each person here, would you guide us? Lord, I pray today, would you show each person here, Lord, is there any words that people have spoken that you want us to receive? And Lord, is there anything that you're calling us to speak out to those people? And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us, Lord, to walk these things out. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.